Hi, I'm Jason Nias, along with Natalie Wires from Digital River, an e-commerce and payments company dedicated to helping brands go global and grow their revenue. But this isn't about us. This is Commerce Connect, a podcast about people who are creating some of the best e-commerce experiences of our time. Listen on to hear from e-commerce visionaries as they look back on where they started and lessons they've learned that have gotten them where they are today and what they believe is the future of online shopping. Hi, this is Jason from Digital River. Latin America provides both huge opportunity and huge challenges for e-commerce. That makes the career path for my guest today even more remarkable. Paul Rios is the Director of Sales in Latin America for HubSpot, a leading CRM platform provider. It's a job he created for himself after spearheading HubSpot's expansion into the region, developing HubSpot's go-to-market strategy for Latin America and Brazil. Welcome, Paul. Hi, Jason. Thank you for having me. So, Paul, how does a guy from Queens who took a side project of selling into Latin America for HubSpot uh, and turn that, how did you turn that into a big driver of your career and a big business for HubSpot? Can, can you start off by maybe introducing us to HubSpot and then a little bit of your backstory uh, as to what got you there? Yeah, absolutely. So, HubSpot um, has been around for about 14 years, if I'm not mistaken, and we started as a suite of marketing tools to implement inbound marketing, which is a a concept uh, and a term that we coined. Uh, We've since expanded our service offering to include CRM and sales enablement tools, um, a CMS, customer success tools, uh, most recently an operations hub to better execute on uh, revenue operation strategies. Um, so every year we, we mostly, we have about one big launch um, growing that product portfolio. Um, I would imagine that many listeners of the podcast probably heard of us uh, previously. As for myself, uh, grew up in New York from um, immigrant parents. Uh, the icebreaker that I like to use that always goes well in, in Latin America is that I play baseball like an Argentine and soccer like a Puerto Rican. Hence, I didn't have uh, great prospects for sports growing up. So just to give context there, Argentina has a rich soccer culture, has won the World Cup. Um, And in in Puerto Rico, baseball is the the sport of choice usually. Um, And so I was pretty miserable at sports. Um, I was always fond of studying. I was pretty nerdy, Um, studied engineering growing up. Um, you know, if, if I could choose a profession in an ideal world, it'd be to be an eternal student. Unfortunately, uh, the way that works in the U S is just generates you debt rather than help you to generate income. So that was, that, that was not a path that was open to me. Um, but, uh, kind of lining things up and going back to your original question, you know, I was a, a year into HubSpot after business school, I was doing sales. Uh, we were a tiny company at the time. We we're about 250 people, well, well pre-IPO. Um, we had no international operations, no international sales teams, um, but inbound marketing was working really well globally, um, and it definitely attracted a lot of people to our brand. Um, and a lot of those people and companies were actually outside of the U.S., and a lot of reps uh, didn't follow up on that demand. Because what any good sales rep does is, is usually follows the path of least resistance. So why, you know, why to sell someone in a foreign language when you can sell 
to an equally viable, if not more viable prospect uh, domestically. Um, so one day though, I got a lead from a hotel in Mexicali, right? So it's just south of the border with California. Um, and um, you know, I saw their location, I saw the telephone, number had an international code, um, the name of the individual. And back then in our lead capture forms, we had a question that asked, what is your biggest marketing challenge? And they responded that at length, very quality response, uh, but in Spanish. So I was like, okay, connecting the dots here, it seems like they prefer you know, to be engaged in Spanish. Um, my thesis was not incorrect. Um, and speaking Spanish definitely facilitated winning that deal. Uh, and a light bulb went off in my head and said, hey, you know, I wonder how many more or how much more demand we could have that like fits this profile that no one's following up on because simply of language, I was, I was the only Spanish speaking sales rep at the time, probably the only Spanish speaker in the entire company. And so I looked in our CRM and, and I was just dumbfounded when I saw that we had 30,000 leads in Latin America that no one had followed up with. And this isn't 30,000 leads in 2021, this is 30,000 leads in 2011, you know? So lots of lots of pent up demand. As for context, um, using rough numbers, you know, that volume of demand um, could feed about 10 sales reps or thought of differently one sales rep for 10 years, right? So quite a sizable opportunity that I'd stumbled upon there. and. Uh, you know, I raised my hand and, and asked if I could tackle this opportunity. Um, and leadership was skeptical and rightfully so. You know, our product was not localized. Um, we didn't have sales support in Spanish. We didn't have any marketing collateral in Spanish. We didn't have any post-sale support in Spanish. I mean, we were just literally not ready for this, uh, to exploit this opportunity here. Um, Nonetheless, uh, it, it really ignited a passion within me. Um, yeah, I was having fun at HubSpot till then. I was about a year into my uh, tenure, uh, learning some new skills. I'd never done sales before, uh, but I wouldn't say I was, you know, really like crazy passionate until I saw this opportunity and was able to align just so many vectors, you know, professional and personal, um, and and really leverage my my upbringing and my my culture and my identity, more of my identity really um, to my everyday job. And I thought that was really exciting. So I didn't, I persisted and I really, you know, didn't let the opportunity slip. Um, you know, eventually it, it snowballed into to what it is today. That's fantastic. I, I really love when, you know, a lot of times when you look back at people's story, a lot of it's a little bit of chance, a little bit of taking advantage of your at bat. But what I heard you say is the fact that you spoke Spanish was your main criteria for being able to, to basically advance your career. So sometimes it's just one thing that differentiates you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I like to say um, when I coach uh, or mentor reps is uh, I don't believe in luck. Uh, you have to manufacture your own luck, right? So in line with what you just said, it's um, you know, placing yourself in a position where you're going to come across great opportunities having the awareness to spot a great opportunity and then being able to execute against that opportunity, right? So you need a little bit of all those things uh, to basically create uh, your own luck. So I agree with you on that. Absolutely. So 30,000 leads in 2011, it's been a decade. Um, your business has exploded. You guys are a public company. You guys are doing really, really well. Um, obviously from 
having one Spanish speaker to serve a big market. Can you talk a little bit about that journey, a decade's worth of localization, I guess? <laughs> yeah, you know, um, it's all about slow and steady, one foot in front of the other and, and incremental gains. So the, the way it unfolded is um, when I was first given the opportunity, it was, it was part time. So uh, my leadership took a, a what I call uh, in air quotes, like a Google-esque approach where they said, hey, you know what? do your day job 80% of the time and then spend 20% of your time exploring this opportunity here. And so um, what I really did was 100% of my time on my day job and then 20% extra on this opportunity. I was, I was young and unmarried and, and pre-kids. So I think I, I had the opportunity there, but um, splitting hairs. Um, what I would do is I would stay later in my workday and then call West Coast, uh, Mexico, which is a three hour difference. So, you know, when people in my uh, time zone uh, were disengaging and going home for the evening, I, I went to another time zone. And, um, you know, every month I set a personal goal of closing maybe one or two deals out of Latin America. And so slowly started to compile this body of evidence, this body of success. Uh, I kept persisting and, and um, you know, data speaks and um, eventually leadership you know, couldn't really ignore the, the track record that I was putting together. And so they let me um, further explore the opportunity uh, full-time, which is really exciting. Um, they also unleashed me in the sense that um, they removed the constraint of having to do either channel sales or direct sales. So that's, that was our primary segmentation um, in, in our go-to market at that time. And so um, I could do whatever I wanted, more or less, uh, which is really exciting, though pretty quickly I, I realized that um, I was a jack of all trades and master of none. And if I really wanted to scale, I needed to specialize. Um, and we can, we can go deeper on that in, in a second. But basically, to, to, to finish the thought, it's all about just keeping uh, to add small victory after small victory. And so as an individual contributor, kept amassing uh, wins to the point that um, it was obvious that adding headcount uh, or resources to to the project would pay dividends. Um, so then I had the unenviable task of being a, a team lead, which is basically a, a player coach. So I still carried a number, uh, but I still had to also develop my peers and all while getting paid the same exact salary. Um, eventually, uh, keep amassing those victories. We got to the point where you can justify a, a manager headcount and, and the resources that come along with it. Uh, and then same thing, you keep adding victories until you can justify multiple managers and eventually a director uh, and just keep scaling like that, you know, victory after victory. And um, with scale, you then obligate additional surround sound resourcing. So localization of the product, localization of marketing collateral, eventually the hiring of a dedicated marketing person, which then turned into a marketing team, uh, and the same with uh, post-sale resources. Awesome. I want to slow you down a little bit. You gave me a lot there. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's start off by talking about, you know, channel sales versus direct, and you guys, you were effectively doing both. How did HubSpot think about it to then versus today uh, on supporting the channel? I imagine that channel sales in Latin America was probably pretty nascent, maybe non-existent, and you maybe had to develop some things there. Can you just spend a little time kind of talking about some of the business dynamics that you kind of had to address? 
Yeah, absolutely. So spot on. I mean, there was no challenge channel to speak of at that time. Um, and when I decided to specialize, I decided to, I decided to specialize via channel um, because I realized that that was more scalable, right? So if I can uh, acquire and uh, ramp up and maintain a solid relationship with, you know, a dozen channels, um, that was way more scalable for closing sales than, than trying to replicate myself 12 times over. Um, and so in the beginning, all that heavy lifting though fell on me. So all the enablement materials I either had to create or localize myself. Um, today we have a well-oiled machine that helps us to acquire and ramp and educate and train our channels. Um, our underlying thesis though really hasn't changed from then until now. Um, we look to legitimately change the lives of our channels. Um, you know, we work best with channels when we collaborate together for mutual success. And uh, what we help our channels to do is create new revenue streams uh, where none existed previously for them, or to you know, allow for exponential nonlinear growth of existing revenue streams that they have today and, and really you know, impact their lives. And we have some great email chains of partners um, you know, emailing us after five uh, years working with us and saying, man, you know, I was able to grow my company 20x, like, look at this amazing thing that really like just warms your heart to see the impact that you can have on your channels. And that really hasn't changed. Probably the, the biggest thing that's changed at this point in time regarding our channel strategy is that, you know, our product portfolio has expanded significantly. Our product keeps creeping up market. Um, so the types of channels that we need um, has changed. It's really a I would say diversified. So there's still room for the original type of channels that we had, which were mostly marketing agencies who would leverage our software on behalf of customers um, with the goal of generating demand. Uh, but because now we have the CRM and the customer success tools and things of that nature, we also need partners who can do really complex CRM integrations and rollouts. We need partners who can do really good, really slick, really scalable integrations across um, our products and other products in the market. Um, I'd say those are the two, the two main ones. And then we keep flirting with the idea um, in some markets of maybe even um, evolving our channel strategy to include things like uh, distributors and things like that. Today, we don't have a multi-tiered channel strategy, but it's something we're always evaluating. Got it. So, you know, when, when businesses like HubSpot continue to evolve and grow and add new utility, um, ultimately, um, they're effectively leave some segment of the market that's underserved. And I think in your career, you identified 30,000 leads that were not getting worked. And by definition, those are underserved potential. So in, in HubSpot's view, I mean, as you guys move more enterprise, is aspects of that kind of SMB that only really want the aspects of the original HubSpot? Is there a customer that's underserved? And, and how do you think about kind of serving them? I'll answer that in two parts. Um, when our new um, CEO, Yamini, um, actually, she, she started as our chief customer officer and recently became our CEO, um, came on board a year and change ago. Um, the first thing that she did is, is roll out a multi-year kind of like vision and strategy. And one of the things that it entailed was 
narrowing the focus of who we wanted to solve for because with the expansion of our software offering, the expansion of our global footprint um, and our creep up market, we, we got into this dangerous zone where we were trying to be everything to everybody. And that's near impossible to pull off. And so we have some really ambitious growth goals. And to do that, we had to be much more focused on who we wanted to serve and how. One of the things that HubSpot's been leaning into for quite a while now is product-led growth. And so um, there are some really cool technology driven ways of satisfying smaller customers with uh, less heavy human interaction. It's something we iterate on quite literally daily um, and trying to get it right. And so that does extend us a little bit and allow us to serve multiple points of the market. Um, so at the higher end, as a, a heavier human touch and ratios both pre and post sale are, are reduced. Um, and at the lower end of the market, those ratios are relaxed and you try to use you know, automation and personalization to give people an authentic experience nonetheless. You took it exactly where I wanted you to, um, which is, you know, you evolve your product and your messaging and your story so that it still serves a market, but you serve it more efficiently. Um, and I think that ties really nicely to some of the work or some of the things you might be seeing in Latin America. Um, if we focus it on a local, a great experience is a local experience. Maybe we can use that as a, a common out, common you know area to start. Absolutely. What are some of the what are some of the things that folks in Latin America expect when doing business with a brand like HubSpot or or others? What what, what, do, what would you say is the expectations for things like contracting language, uh, product localization, customer service, payment types, those sorts of things? Can you unpack that? Uh, absolutely. So it's, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, the more success you have in a given uh, geography and the bigger and more well-known the brand, uh, the higher the expectations are in, in that regard. So um, I wanted to throw that out there first and, and foremost. Um, and um, yeah, you know, some of those expectations are very much um, with regards to the purchasing process or, or rather the contracting process. So as time goes on and the, and the more success we have in Latin America, I would say a little bit, the less um, patience we have from the market for failing to meet those contracting expectations uh, that they have, uh, meaning that they expect continuous investment from a brand of this size in continuously eliminating friction uh, in the local contracting uh, experience. And so increasingly people are you know, or asking to contract in local currency um, to help them to maximize um, the utilization of local tax codes and infrastructure um, um, to emit 
uh, locally standard um, invoices and payment receipts and other tax, tax documentation, which can get very nuanced and very, and very localized. Um, so things of that nature. Um, and rarely do I think some of these things become deal breakers, but they can definitely turn what should have or could have been a relatively easy sales process into a much more complicated, painful, friction-filled and elongated sales process, which then also puts stress on, you know, forecasting and other uh, internal processes as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I like your point early in the conversation around, you know, when you talked about the 30,000 leads, well, all of those companies probably went to HubSpot.com, probably know you didn't have anything in Portuguese or Spanish and reached out anyway. Um, and so their expectations were probably uh, curbed based on that engagement to begin with. Fast forward today, you guys are a public company, well-funded, a lot of employees, product localized in a lot of languages. The expectations have risen. And so you're kind of having to fight against a completely different bar than you were a decade ago. You agree with Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, it's, it's, it's funny in, pr in preparing for our conversation, I was, I was recalling some of my earlier sales endeavors and um, the delight that in people's voices when I reached out to them in Spanish, because like you said, they had zero expectation that they would be served uh, in some capacity in their preferred local language. And then to have someone, you know, call them out of the blue or send them an email in their local language, people were just like over the moon. Uh, today, no one bats an eye, eyelash for that. You know, it's, it's, it's the opposite. It's when a, an email mistakenly goes out and not their native language, they, they definitely notice right away and, and, and uh, remind you quickly uh, how they prefer to, to, uh, to communicate. Yep. Well, if you think about some of the, some of the original customers of HubSpot are onesie twosie, 10 people companies who are just trying to have a relationship with their customers. And, uh, you know, a lot of them actually act like consumers in a lot of ways, uh, meaning they want uh, certain payment types or mobile wallets or voucher systems or, or even e-financing options like buy now, pay later choices. So uh, it's installments is another example. So what's, what's really unique, and I think, about a product like HubSpot is that you have to be able to serve the onesie twosies employee-based companies, and you have to serve companies that have thousands of employees. To be able to do that in virtually every country is no small feat. So I kind of get where your CEO is coming from, which is we kind of got to pick where we're going to be great and where we're going to automate and scale. Did I kind of capture your issue appropriately? Yeah, yeah. So actually, yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, in terms of, in terms of knowing who you're going to serve exceptionally well and who you're comfortable just serving okay um you can use a, a bunch of different lenses for that and so you know one of the lens uh, could be the geography lens for example and, you know we do business in over a hundred different countries um but we had to decide like okay which are our pillar countries like what are the top six countries where we're you know want to generate 80 percent of our revenue from and what's that long tail then of other countries where the experience is going to be a little bit, um, 
uh, like diluted, I guess you can say it's maybe not the best, best way, but you can't, you know, you can't give it the same resourcing that you do for the, the, you know, core geographies. Yeah. More focused on automation, repeatability. Yeah. Or even, so for example, um, we're accelerating the languages that we're localizing into, but when you think of localization, it's not, you know, a black, white binary concept. Um, there are some languages which the product is localized, but then also the sales experience and post-sales experiences in local language. And then there's other languages where the product is localized and a lot of our self-service resourcing is localized, but we don't have uh, localization throughout the sales process or in those human interactions beyond the product, right? So uh, that's an example uh, perhaps uh, of you know, a, a language or geography that has a little bit more resourcing than one that has a, a little bit more um, scaled resourcing. How important is it for HubSpot to put people in region, uh, like sales resources in a, as an example? Or, or are you found you can be effective from, from the United States uh, selling into Latin America? Or do you think you know, feet on the street or even maybe doing that through your channel? But what is the importance of a local presence in, in being successful in a region? That's a very nuanced response as well. So um, for context, and, and probably a lot of the listeners uh, would not be aware of this, is that we have zero field sales. So when you say in region, that's uh, potentially a very different concept for HubSpot than, say, like Salesforce or Oracle, which have robust field sales organizations. So when we move into a geography, um, there is uh, more than a handful of data points that need to be looked into. But generally, some of the main drivers for moving in market is uh, like access to talent is a, is a big one. Um, so for Latin America, you know, one of the main reasons that we opened our Bogota office uh, two and change years ago was access to talent. Uh, we're seeing something similar uh, in Europe where we keep expanding offices uh, to get access to niche uh, skills, especially around language. Um, so one challenge um, for us in, in Europe uh, for a while has been getting, you know, um, sellers who are proficient in Nordic languages. Um, so we do really well in the Nordic region in terms of our unit economics. Um, but it was really hard in Dublin to find people who spoke those languages. We started opening offices um, in other parts of Europe as well. Um, so one's access to talent. Um, one is also if um, having a local presence, again, lets you have you know, non-linear exponential growth in a, in a given market, be it because of you know, tax um, um, economics or um, yeah, just like other, other ways to be able to scale your ability to sell into that market um, than being, you know, 3000 miles and six time zones away, you know, cause that's another thing, not only just access to talent, but you know, one of, one of the big pains that we had when we started to sell into Europe. And I remember because I had good friends on these, on these teams was, you know, we had people in the U S selling in English to the UK, but waking up at, you know, ungodly hours um, or worse was the team that spearheaded uh, Australia sales. I mean, they were living basically a, a flipped uh, schedule and they did that for like six plus months and that just really wears on you. So if you determined that one of those markets is one that you want to scale in, you, you've got to more or less um, go in market, uh, you know, in air quotes. 
How do you guys think about, um, I guess this, this all comes down to really planning and things. And I know you have, uh, you've done a bit of coaching with people around trying to get into Latin, Latin American other things, but how do people kind of set expectation for what a, what a market or a region is worth? Can you kind of take us through the mindset that you and the work process you have to go through to establish expectations, which then get you resources and that whole chicken and egg game? Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think books can be written on this. Um, I'm hoping you just kind of cut through it and give us the answer. (laughs) Yeah. um, So in its earliest days at HubSpot, um, this was approached basically, if I want to really simplify things, is there's two primary camps. There was the camp of thought that wanted to approach international expansion in a more what I call traditional way, which is determining TAM via whatever metrics matter to your business uh, and leveraging whatever data sources that are reliable and uh, accessible. Um, So for example, for us, it's like how many medium-sized businesses, which is our core, right, um, exist in a given country and um, making some estimations of how deeply you can penetrate that market and perhaps um, some measure of difficulty doing business in that uh, country using like World Bank data. And so, for example, there's countries that are really pro-business and there's other countries that are, you know, awful like Brazil, where it's super bureaucratic and difficult. And so those those create um, can create significant headwinds. The other camp was more the you know, idealists, um, your rosy glassed inbound marketing camp where it's like, Hey, you know, follow the demand. So for example, we generated 30,000 leads in Latin America with zero localization. That should, that, that should be worth something, right? There's definitely maybe like that is maybe a market that we want to go with because they're engaging with our messaging. They're engaging with our brand. They're engaging with the concept of inbound marketing and we haven't even done anything to extend like the olive branch, you know? And so those are the two camps we're often competing with each other um, as like the, the reasoning for which markets should we, should we go into. Um, and this is well before we had like a centralized like strategy team and things like that. And so today it's, it's much more nuanced where actually both of those things are taken into consideration. And so these complex matrices um, and algorithms with various data points that feed into it. And, you know, these are often reviewed with the leadership at HubSpot. And also we, we try to take care that the algorithm doesn't get overly complex and that you're including like a hundred different variables. But, you know, suffice it to say that um, there are some variables and we try to keep most of them quant, but some of them are a little bit qualitative. And so um, Quant is you're still looking at total addressable market on paper, um, political stability, economic stability. Um, and then some of it is more on the you know, demand side, which is like, what is our historical and trending um, volume of demand in that market? Um, and you use some sort of proxy. So maybe like marketing qualified leads in the last 12 months from that market, is it trending up or down? Um, what's our close rate been in that market? What's our ASP been in that market? So you look a little bit at the unit economics in those markets. And then you also have to layer in a little bit, um, you know, where those unit economics uh, achieved through heavy um, investment internally or kind of like um, in a more um, 
opportunistic way where you have some good, you know, early unit economics, but maybe those unit economics won't scale without further investment. So that's another, you know, variable type that you put in there as well. Um, so yeah, it started less complicated in, in that, like that dichotomy, like, you know, paper TAM versus demand. And now it's kind of morphed into something more, um, more complex and more nuanced. Yeah. Well, you're a public company now. The stakes are higher. You got to be right. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Well, so, so uh, I, I love, I love the continuum in my mind when you were describing that, you know, you've got on the right, you've got the very large expectations in terms of growth. And then you probably have level of effort assigned to it on the left. You've got almost opportunistic, which is very low level of expectation, very low level of expense. What's, in terms of Latin America, to kind of keep us centered, what's got the next level of investment? Where do you need to go kind of deeper to have more of an intimate customer experience? Where does HubSpot continue to invest in Latin America to really unlock more next level growth? Totally. Maybe it's country-based, maybe it's capability-based, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, so another way to, to, to think about it is, is, when you're more on the opportunistic end of the spectrum, you go after the low hanging fruit, right? So what was some of that low hanging fruit? Well, I guess I would say low hanging fruit and also table stakes, right? So low hanging fruit, I would say is more, um, you go, uh, you start to localize marketing collateral, right? In a more, in a more mature way, vis-a-vis -a, -vis a marketing team and also leveraging uh, a localization team that we have specifically to localization and they sit outside of marketing even um and so you do the easier stuff quote unquote and then also the table stakes which is the the software itself being in in local language and then uh you, you incrementally go after the more complicated things and so to answer your question more more directly there it's going back to the more enterprisey contractual um, components, right? So um, localized uh, terms of service that a non-English speaking lawyer, uh, law team or, or lawyers can analyze and redline and return to us being more compliant with local uh, contractual frameworks uh, and things of that nature. Um, and uh, now we're also just getting to where we can no longer easily dodge the local currency item. Um, even if you go up market, a lot of the bigger companies in Latin America are used to purchasing dollars or maybe contracting with American companies, but that comes at a, at a hidden cost many times. And so that hidden cost can look different but it could be something like in order to be contractually compliant with local laws, you have to use an intermediary and uh, no intermediary works for free. So, you know, you, you have revenue dilution maybe there because you have to use intermediaries uh, just to meet the criteria. Um, this happens sometimes with like um, RFPs and things like that in Latin America where, um, we don't have legal approval to use the systems or processes that they have in place. And so we have to use an intermediary to run the RFP on our behalf. Um, another hidden cost sometimes if they can contract directly with you without the use of an intermediary is um, 
you have to offer more aggressive discounts, you know, in some of these countries where there's, there is no like bilateral tax agreement with the United States, you know, they, they're paying like 30, 40% tax on software from the U S. And so, you know, we can be much more expensive than either a domestic competitor or a more localized competitor, right? So for example, salesforce.com is a, is a competitor of ours. And in some countries in Latin America, they have a physical presence where we do not. And so their product is considered domestic. And so uh, they don't, the end customer doesn't have to pay an exorbitant um, you know, tax. You know, maybe the tax they pay for the software from Salesforce is 10% or 15%, but if they buy from me, it's 45%. So there's 30% Delta there. And sometimes, not, not sometimes, often the expectation is that we will in part or in, or in, in full close that gap on behalf of the customer. And that definitely puts a lot of uh, downward pressure on our pricing. Absolutely. So if, if, if uh, folks on the listening have paid any attention to HubSpot stock, it's been an awesome performing company. And, and I think their business is growing something like 40 some odd percent uh, compound annual growth rate, but international revenue is close to 60%, which is unbelievable. So it kind of talks a lot about some of the nuanced stuff you've been talking about, Paul, around really executing in region. Uh, the, the next kind of point I'll make is around uh, one of your key strategies around how you kind of get the word out on HubSpot. Most people would tell you they invest in blogs, review sites, industry publications, and, and things like Google. But one of the most effective things that, that HubSpot talks about is how you effectively use word of mouth. Um, I would love to hear from you how do you drive? I mean, maybe it's just simply have a great product that people love and they'll talk about it, but how do you, how do you foster word of mouth as a key strategy in places like Latin America? I would say none of these in and of itself is a driver of this word of mouth, but definitely, you know, plays into it. So uh, product led growth is one. So like, we were one of the first B2B product-led growth companies in Latin America. Now there's, there's certainly no shortage of companies trying to follow suit, especially domestic players or regional players. Um, but uh, you know, we were one of the first you know, business level softwares that you can get for free. And that got us a huge user base in Latin America. And then people um, share that, right? Like they tell their friends like, Hey, here's this like legit CRM that's really good and it's free and like no it's not a hoax like you know it's real um so that helped a lot that helps a ton in the startup scene so we have great penetration among startups and um that's a a brilliant play there because while the mortality rate of those startups is high the ones who do survive if we can get penetrated early and we kind of become their tech stack uh, their de facto tech stack um you know, switching costs when in, when you're talking about a, a tech stack can be massive. So you get in there early and they just grow around you. It, you're near impossible to replace. Um, and that's really cool because all these founders go to like their incubators and their accelerators that they participate in and they just, you know, preach HubSpot. So that's one PLG, uh, product-led growth. Um, another is our partners. So our partners, um, like I said, we try to legitimately add a ridiculous amount of value to our partners where it's kind of similar 
where maybe a, a, a channel will have a handful of revenue streams pre-HubSpot, and then they work with HubSpot, and we become their dominant uh, revenue stream. Um, and uh, they want to feed that and grow that. And so they're more than happy to spread uh, word of mouth. So what's interesting is that we never obligate our channels to exclusivity, but by and large, the majority of our partners end up being exclusive to HubSpot because it's the relationship that they derive the most value from. Um, and so a lot of those uh, folks will do word of mouth. And then sometimes we also give them some budget to throw events on our behalf. Um, that's one. And then lastly, um, events. And so HubSpot's always been a very like virtual event uh, versus in-person uh, event type of company. Um, now that's an interesting conversation for another day in Latin America, where I think culturally in-person events have a, a higher ROI than in some other geographies. Um, but, um, you know, virtual events that are free are kind of easy to put on. Um, let me, let me modify that. They're not expensive to put on. And uh, again, what we do is um, we take more of an approach of like enablement rather than trying to centralize and own these experiences. And so we have a robust HubSpot user group network, which is usually led um, by a channel or um, a customer who's just like, you know, super um, into HubSpot and a big champion of HubSpot, but usually they're, they're a channel. And um they'll do these events locally for us uh, virtually, or, or they can be in-person meetups. Well, you know, the, after you answer that, it makes all the sense in the world why you rely on word of mouth. You, you've got a product that's effectively free up to a certain size. I think it's like a million records or something, right. which drives unbelievable affinity. I mean, you're not charging customers when they need that cash the most. And so when they grow, obviously you become very beneficial to their story. And you're right. The return on aggravation of switching out marketing automation or CRM is not there. So you, you grow up with a, a product. So I loved your answer and I loved your partner answer as well. That's fantastic. Yeah. I guess um, just one thing to throw in there as, before we proceed is, is it's kind of a mantra at HubSpot that we, when building relationships, and this applies across the spectrum, whether it's channel or sales or whatnot, is always seek to add value before you seek to extract value, right? And you can see that in our marketing and our product-led growth is we're happy to take that first step and, and add value before we, we ask for reciprocation. And so it's a little scary sometimes, and there's certainly a lot of times where it's not reciprocated, but um, more often than not, it is, and it's a scalable strategy. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, one of the things we always ask is where people stay sharp uh, on the industry, on the, on, the, on the region. So, Paul, the question is this. Who do you look to for keeping you an expert on Latin America and what it takes to be successful in that region? Where do you get your insights? The market, right? Talking to customers. Um, it's really interesting, too, because you know, as our product portfolio grows, you can talk to, you know, a installed customer who's been using your marketing software for five years, but maybe is hesitant to move uh, their CRM onto HubSpot as well. And so they'll, you know, they'll, they'll tell you about um, the market and your product. Um, but really, I always like to be close to the tip of the spear. Um, and so where I enjoy spending a lot of time to learn where the part, the the um, 
market is going is startups, VCs, and angel investors in Latin America because they're boots on the ground, you know, seeing you know, the future really. Like you're, you're talking to companies that, you know, 10 years from now might be the next uh, Mercado Libre or like giant, you know, Latin American uh, unicorn. Um, and so it's fascinating. That's where I enjoy spending the most of my time and seeing where the market's going, seeing the innovations that are coming. Uh, you know, talking to VCs, founders, and angels is you'll see what are the biggest pains that the next wave of, of innovation is looking to solve. And, um, you know, that sometimes gives you insights into where we could be going um, or it gives you insight into how well positioned you are to address those needs or collaborate with those people or integrate with those products um, and really just stay plugged in. And, and probably a saying that, that's popular uh, by you guys is go where the puck is going to be where in, in South America, we'd say, go where the ball is going to be, um, you know, wait for that through pass and go to that open space. So Paul, obviously we talked about the value of, of driving local experiences for e-commerce. Um, I would love to hear from you when you say this company does e-commerce um, locally, correct, whether it's a U.S. company selling to international customers or whether it's maybe even a European one selling to European customers, who, who would you say really does a great job in, be, in delivering kind of a local experience? So um, as, a, as a consumer, um, more in, in like B2C, uh, I'm an avid, avid cycler. And so um, I try to get uh, cutting edge cycling gear and, and often it's, it's from Europe, um, kind of like the birthplace of, of competitive cycling and at least road cycling. And, um, you know, good experiences are companies that set proper expectations is, is what I would say in terms of what you can expect in terms of payment, uh, currency conversion and delivery times. And uh, the bad experiences are the people who just fail to set any expectations or set improper expectations. And I think that can be extrapolated to B2B and also just globally outside of Europe, even to Latin America. And, and it's all about expectation setting. And so, you know, I bought products and they've told me the expectation is, you know, to receive it within two weeks. And then it turns up that it showed up two months later. Um, and it was, it was probably like shipped over in a rowboat or something. It was just miserable. And every time I contacted them for an update, they would, they, they didn't know what to tell me. Um, and then on the positive side, you know, I had a shipper who told me, you know, I bought, um, some high-end uh, cycling shoes and also a power meter. And they're like, hey, the shoes should get there pretty quick. They clear customs quickly. Electronics almost always get stuck in customs, so expect an extra two-week delay. If you get nervous, um, here are some links on, you know, following up with customs and inquiring about your package. And so they set proper expectations and then also gave me self-service materials on, you know, what I can do um, to stay abreast of my, of my package, you know? So those uh, maybe are two two uh, experiences that I would share. I like it. Well, I, I do think it. it's funny how people have very high expectations for B2C and then you get into B2B context and we live with something that's that's different than that with you know establishing really good communication, self-help, documentation, setting expectations. So I like the answer. So Paul, frequently uh, some of our uh, listeners want to get in touch with the, the guests on the podcast. What do you recommend for a way to kind of get in touch with you? Is LinkedIn the best way? Are you active on Twitter? 
You know, I, I was active in Twitter a few years ago and I kind of fell off the habit. Uh, LinkedIn is, is definitely the easiest way to get a, a hold of me. Fantastic. Well, Paul, thank you so much for your time and your investment uh, with us here today on the Digital River Commerce Connect podcast. And uh, we thank you so much and best of luck continuing your, uh, what did you say, non-linear growth at HubSpot. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. And um, yeah, I'm just happy to share the, the some of the, the learnings that we've accumulated over the last decade. Um, it's been a tumultuous journey with a lots of highs and lots of lows. And so it's actually something I... I'm always happy to to share with people, um, you know, industry colleagues statewide, uh, stateside, and also with uh, companies in LATAM and startups in LATAM. You know, if I can help anybody um, avoid some of the stumbles that that we faced, uh, that always gratifies me. Fantastic. Well, it's clear you've been there, done that, and I'm sure a lot of companies would uh, love to have the success you've seen. So, thanks again, Paul, and have a great rest of the day. Thanks, Jason. You've been listening to the Commerce Connect podcast, brought to you by Digital River and edited at Matriarch Digital Media in Minneapolis, Minnesota. To learn more, head to digitalriver.com.